Hello, welcome to the Scotch and Smokes podcast. My name is Brian. I'm Seth. And I'm Jesse. In this episode, we'll be talking about the episode Christmas Waltz. You can find us on the web at madcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook and iTunes if you look up Scotch and Smokes. Go to our website or our Facebook page and leave a comment about a Mad Men episode or what you think of the season so far, and just give us your opinions. Again, we're talking about the episode Christmas Waltz this time. Last time we talked about how time had been passing in the season so far. They went through Thanksgiving, and here we are in December now. So any initial comments since you guys, uh, I know you just watched the episodes recently overnight. So what's fresh in your mind? It seems like the, the themes that we've been talking about week in and week out about materialistic satisfaction not being much satisfaction at all in the end and people always telling lies and, and living double lives and things like that. We've been emphasizing those themes over and over and over again, and boy, did they hit us in the head with those types of themes in this episode. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I said, boy, this is really some of the things we discussed in our earlier episodes did come up here, and that's got to be not only our insight, but the a commentary on the writing of how they are layering the show on, and as you build through the season, you're weaving a tapestry, to mix my metaphors. True. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the materialism and whatnot. And the show begins with Lane, and we see that he's really... The issue that first cropped up in the beginning of the season is that he's having severe tax problems, and he owes a lot of money to the crown, and mm-hmm. he is trying to figure out how to make that work. Maybe I'm overthinking this, and certainly anybody could say that. <laughs> My interpretations are always overthinking what's going on, but I just, again, I, I love the dark and the light themes in this show, and of course we see the opening scene, and the house is dark. Of course, you know, it's in the middle of the night, and there's a time change between England and New York, so the guy from England is calling Lane, whose tax guy is calling him from England during the day, and it's, what, three or four in the morning in New York, so the house, of course, is going to be dark. But still, the, the overriding theme with Mad Men is that bad things and creepy things happen in dark houses, and in light spaces, life is better. So here we are, and, you know, it's an awful phone call to get in the middle of the night that you owe, what, about 8000 U.S. dollars to the Inland Revenue Service. And in those days, I don't know, we have to get that inflation calculator out again, but it's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money now. It's a lot of money then. It's even more money then. And I kept asking myself the question, you know, why aren't you asking someone for help? Why aren't you going to right. Don or right. Roger or someone and saying, Here's what I'm at. Is there anything you guys can do for me? Yeah, sure. Lane is an intensely private character and totally opposite of what Paul and Harry Crane did there. They talked over their problems. Right. Uh, Joan didn't want to talk about her problem, but Don forced her to talk about her problem at the bar. In a, a less calm way, Megan and Don talked over their problems at home. But yeah, you're right, Jesse. I mean, Lane did not want to talk over his problem. He didn't want to share it with anybody. I guess my question to you two guys is, is this Lane's character? Did you believe Lane doing this? Well, I do. I mean, he, just based on the interactions he had with his father and the way his father treated him, and I mean, you're right. You have to, like, 
yell the TV. Just ask Roger. Roger's probably got it like that, you know, you know, sitting, <laughs> you know, somewhere. Bankrolling everybody, and, right? Yeah, but I do think oh, there's some timidity about him that doesn't want. I don't think it's pride. I think it's just he's just scared, and so I, I just. Mm-hmm. That is believable. And, you know, you have to accept that it's believable because it's part of the storyline and that's where they're going. And there's a couple things about this development that came up for me. And one was the contrast between him needing $8,000 like now and not having it and Don being able to write a $6,000 check for a Jaguar and be like, well, Correct. if I don't come back, here you go. You can have it. Yeah. And then there was also the whole thing about how he forged the check with Don's name. And I was wondering, what is that going to have to do later on? Is that going to come back to bite Dawn in some way? Because it's going to be some sort of check that doesn't, not going to clear or, mm-hmm. or, and then they made a point of it being Dawn's signature, not Burt Cooper's signature or Roger's right. signature. So mm-hmm. uh, again, is that going to come up somehow and is that going to lead to something? On that small point of it being Dawn's signature, maybe they're playing around with the fact that. That's not really even done. It's Dick Whitney. Right, right. <laughs> so it's sort of a double forgery, but anyway. Right. I also yeah. got a kick out of that it's only six grand for a new Jaguar, right? 58-something. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> so that gives you the rough idea that he owes the price of a new car. And it's early in the episode, but I will vote now my favorite line is the, I feel like paying you to drive around in the car. You know, he's telling Joan. Uh, Joan did look very good in this episode, especially the scenes in the bar. Um, I thought she was very vulnerable and very beautiful. And I was a little worried that Don and her were going to go there. And I don't think either one of them really want to go there because of their friendship and the respect they have each other. But Mm -hmm. there was some serious flirting and some serious chemistry happening between them two. Right. Yeah, I'd like to get oh, back yeah. to that. Yeah, I'd like to get back to that in a little bit later because I definitely okay. want to okay. deconstruct that scene. Let's talk about, since we, we did mention him, Paul. When I first saw mm-hmm. him, I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast before in an earlier episode, but I've kind of wondered, like, what happened to him? Because I don't remember yeah. his departure from the show. I don't know if they wrote him out or if it was just one of those things like he wasn't there and we we're just supposed to assume that he had left or something. You remember when Don and the rest of them bolted after the Brits sold the agency again? Mm-hmm. They bolted overnight, and they took several people with them, and they took yeah. all their files and their accounts. And Paul comes in the next morning with a whole bunch of other people, and he realizes what ha- has happened, and he goes and he runs into Peggy's office to see if she's there, and of course her office is gone too. Mm. And then he, he gets really mad because he wasn't taken. Okay. I totally did not remember that part. So oh, yeah, 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 all yeah. season yeah. long I've been like, if he's not there for yeah. a reason, then whatever. But when he showed up, I was just like, yeah, Paul's back. And uh, I don't know why. He's not like a great character, but I, I have enjoyed him. Him and Harry, they're kind of of a pair. And so I was glad to see him. And especially in this new guise of his where he's like Hare Krishna and he's just like... Mm. What were your impressions seeing him, seeing him in this, you know, this garb and he's changed his life, has changed. And not, it seems like not all of it is, you know, to his own direction. Like it seemed like he was kind of like in a, down on his luck because certain jobs hadn't worked out and then that hadn't worked right. out. And then, so this is sort of like where he's ended up, not so much where he wanted to go. Yeah. Well, he was always kind of a, an alternative type of guy. Remember? I mean, he, he had, oh, you know, my goodness, he had a black girlfriend back in those days. He was always a sort of a counterculture guy. And Seth, um, didn't he go down and march? Yes. And, uh, yes, he did. Um, yes. I got to tell you, I think I'm the only one of the three of us who lived through that era. 
of course, I was a child, but I can remember going to my, I had a, an uncle, and we'd go to his house just about every weekend, and I happened to notice that his hair was getting longer and longer and longer, and then one day, I mean, it was down to his shoulders, and the next thing I know, he's on a commune, and he took a vow of silence, and he was an accountant, <laughs> um, and he just completely went over to the other side, <laughs> you know, he became this sort of hippie. It was very hard to process when you were, I guess I was about six or seven years old. I didn't know what was going on. I guess my point is it it happened in those days. It was a very, very forceful thing. And, and of course, to have Paul reject sort of the capitalist lifestyle and having all this capitalism and materialism thrust in our faces here in this episode with a Jaguar, with money problems, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's kind of a good contrast. You know, I was born in 59. Okay, so then you, you, you're you yeah. the same age. Yeah. yeah, my dad was in the Army, though, so in a lot of ways we were sheltered, you know, because all his co-workers were fellow military. And But I do remember certainly a lot of that time. And I also have always liked Paul, and I, and I thought this was really brilliant of the show to bring him back and in such a changed manner. And then the talk about what happened to him and they're going through the list of agencies he was working for and you get the impression <laughs> that each of them was lower on the rung exactly. ladder of success yeah. and then AMP AMP I don't know that agency no the AMP he was in house <laughs> you know for yeah. a grocery chain it's kind of ironic cuz wasn't his black girlfriend a grocery store worker uh, I, I don't remember that my, yeah she was yeah and the great guest casting, not a, I don't recognize the female Hari Krishna, but she was very attractive, as we later see. And we continue the theme as Seth talks about what type of situation will we see next week. They continue to surprise us. We'll talk a little more about that. I know I would have just brushed off my old friend. I would have like, oh, yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, got to go. You know, I have no interest going sitting on the floor and chanting. Mm -hmm. And I find that a little surprising he did. Well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not as surprised. I mean, all the characters in that show are looking for something. They're searching for something. And I think Harry seems to be one of the more conventional guys there. But he, he's also searching for something. And look, Mother Lakshmi there, the girlfriend of Paul, yeah, she's kind of an attractive girl, and, you know, you also have to remember that that was the year of, well, it was sort of the beginning of the era of free love, and I'm sure, you know, Harry's thinking, wow, hey, man, this <laughs> this is going to happen here. She was certainly flirting with him, and for obvious reasons, of course, we find out later. Speaking of Harry and Paul, it just hit me when I was at the very end of the episode, and maybe I'm, again, maybe I'm making too much out of this, when Harry gives him... Harry gives Paul the $500 and he tells him to go to Hollywood and try his hand at script writing, even though the script he read was terrible. I guess he just wants to get him away from that girl, from Mother Lakshmi, and get him away from the Hare Krishnas. But Paul says something that I thought was very interesting. He says, you know, Harry, there were so many people who said they wanted to help me, but you're the only one who did anything. But the thing that Harry did was give him $500, which is obviously a material solution to his problems, or hmm. not a solution, but a, an attempt to solve his problems. And what did you think was his true motive for doing that? Was it to help him, or was it just to 
screw over Lakshmi who had kind of manipulated him and made him kind of a fool. Yeah, I think he wanted to get him away from La- Lakshmi's kind of a, a, a nasty character. I yeah. think he wanted to get his friend away from her. He could see that his friend was in love with her, and the woman he's in love with just had sex with him on his desk in his office. Yeah. So rather than say that to him, he says, here, take the money and get yeah. out of here. I think that's true. I think he did do that, but I also think it was partly just to get back at her. And it does go back to a um, common theme. We're talking about themes of the season. It's like that, you know, the power that women have and like that she was using whatever assets or, you know, things that she had in her disposal to influence. Yeah, I was going to say, she actually makes that line, I'm paying you in the only, you know, trade. And he says, well, you've already given it to me. And I think, you know, the often said two birds with one stone. I yeah. think he wanted to help his friend. He wanted to force his friend to get out of an unhealthy situation and not right. being part of that group but being manipulated by that group and giving him hope. I don't know if he's really helping him in the long run <laughs> because obviously his script was horrible. Right. And he's sending him off with, I guess, maybe one month's salary to go to California. Mm. I did find it amusing that he called the hit TV show Star Trek. And I went, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Our history is this was never a hit. <laughs> yeah. Not at the beginning it was, not no. really. Now, the one thing I thought was, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, and maybe I'm just looking into it because I am kind of a geek and I know Star Trek stories and episodes and whatnot. By the way, I'm not <laughs> going to say anything here. I'm going to leave it up to you to talk <laughs> right. about Star Trek episodes. Because, you know, the, the, the script he wrote was the, you know, the Negron complex and him and Peggy are kind of like rolling their eyes about, oh, it's terrible. It's got this, that, and the other. The thing is, and I don't know where, you know, this is where a true Star Trek geek would know these things, but like there is the very famous Star Trek episode where there's a race mm-hmm. of aliens that have black on one side and white on the other and there's another portion of this race where it's flipped right. they have black on the other side and white on the other side and it was a way of depicting race relations in a way on a sci-fi tv show and it was right. to this day it's it's brought up and so i'm wondering where that falls in the thing because i mean in a way and I, again i didn't quite listen to what they said his story was about but it almost seemed like well he was almost on the path Half of what that yeah. aired story was about. So in a way, he mm. kind of was like what they really needed, but maybe his overall script wasn't good enough. But I just thought that was mm. interesting that maybe, and then I don't know, maybe I'm just digging too deep, but maybe he was like on the right track. Maybe he is going yeah. to LA with, you know, maybe he does have something going for him. And, and Harry, not being a Star Trek fan, wasn't couldn't see it. Thank you, IMDb. It's Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is the name of the episode for all mm. the Star Trek fans that are listening that are screaming at their iPod, and uh, it was in the third season. Okay, see. Uh, So that would be broadcast originally in January of 1969. Okay, so he was ahead of his time then. Yes, he was. Let's talk about Joan. She hasn't been in the last, hasn't been prominently in the last couple episodes, and she had a very great, strong episode this time, and she's served divorce papers and flips out, and Don and her go off, and they have some great scenes. Joan rarely flips out. Joan yeah. is such a calm person, so for her to flip out, I think it's important to note. I felt for the poor receptionist, though she was just going through the motions, right? It is and not, you know, hey, she they needed to see you, said it was important. There's yeah. one thing I'd like to point out, is that the, the young receptionist, 
talked back to Joan, said, I can't do this, I'm not supposed to do that, blah, 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 blah. In the first season of Mad Men, would the receptionists ever have spoken back to Joan? I mean, they would have been fired on the spot. So I think, again, I think Weiner is showing us how things are changing in the culture at that point. That's a good point, because that was her group, and she told them where to sit and what to say, and you know, she would give them tips, and that was her little fiefdom. fiefdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I thought it was fascinating. Don said, I was told early when I started, don't mess with John. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, the Don-Joan relationship is a, obviously a fan favorite. It's two of the most attractive people on the show, two of the most you know, sexual people on the show. We've seen them together a few times and always thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be great if those two got together? But I think Weiner likes to just sort of tease us with that. And they do get along very well. They really understand each other. And I think the two actors have great chemistry together. Yes. I just loved the little things like him taking his coat off and putting Mm. it on her. I was impressed that Don seems to be getting back on his game. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, the big ending. Oh, yeah. But Pete had just said maybe a couple and... Let's go. And so he's like, okay, come on, Joan and I, that'll be a couple. Let's get her out of this office. Let's go. And then we'll go take care of business as well. When they're having their sit down, they're talking, and Don brings up that one line where he says, he relates the thing that someone had said to him. The woman said, I love being bad and going home and being Uh good. I was trying to remember what character said that. And I I think it was was the comedian's comedian's wife. That was the comedian's wife that Don had that affair with. I think Bobby Barrett was her name. Yeah. And also, I think the other cool thing to note about the scene that we were talking about here is that, remember that Don used to be a used car salesman. Yes, too, So he yes. knows his way around cars, and he knows all the tricks that car salesmen will use, et cetera, right. et cetera. A couple episodes ago, a character dropped a line. They said, there's hobos in the streets. And in this episode, they actually go uh-huh. into a car dealership. And I'm yep. seeing lots of little like fragments of early Don's life pop up in all these episodes, like these little mosaic pieces that are just popping up here and there. I almost expect in another episode there to be some army reference that's going to come in to Korea or, you know, just something's going to come in because it just seems like all these little past glimpses into his former life are being mentioned and not necessarily like over the top, really in your face, but they are showing up quite a bit. Speaking of references from past lives, what about Roger Sterling and December 7th? My goodness. Oh, yes. Every episode has Roger doing something kind of comical and him being just uh, totally drunk over Pearl Harbor Day. is uh, I mean, That was interesting. You mentioned Roger being drunk, but, you know, we see the guys drink a lot. And I had thought even before Don got home that him and Joan seemed to be really showing the effects of the liquor mm-hmm. more than normal. Yes. I was glad that they followed up on that. First off, in today's society, seeing Don driving in Manhattan, being that drunk, made me very uncomfortable. But mm-hmm. when he gets home and you're drunk, you, I mean, you see he can't even, I mean, they don't play it for laughs, but his coat and hat. In a comedy, this would be paid for jokes, but it wasn't. It was mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. I, I'm setting it aside and not putting it on a rack or anything. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting, an extra context on their discussion. Yeah, especially with the line that he said, I'm okay to drive, and 
that almost seemed like out of context of that era because like drunk driving today and even like 10 years ago, 20 years ago was it was a big deal. I mean, if you were a drunk driver, you're going to pay the price socially, penalties. And I think back then, I could be wrong. I didn't live in that era, but it just seems like it wasn't such a stigma. Yeah, the story I always hear, Brian, is back in the old days, the cops would have said, here, give me your keys, follow me, they drove the guy home, got him to his house, got him inside, and then just moved on, mm. especially in a smaller town. I also really loved their discussion about, looks like you got it right this time, and Don seems very happy in his marriage, and he's telling about it, and you're going to find something else. And Joan going, yeah, me with a baby. And Don picking her out somebody. Well, this guy's been looking at you. And then another great line was, well, he'll think I struck out. And she goes like it as if that could have happened. Yeah. I was going to save this for when we talk about our favorite lines of the episode. But I just wanted to bring up this whole scene, especially the second scene of them in the bar. I felt that scene, the two of them was probably, for me, the best written scene of this season. I just loved how it was written and the repartee they had and the innuendo that she was giving and how it all started with her saying kind of poutily, look at all these people dancing to my music, which was perfect. It's an invitation to dance with me. And he says, do you want to dance? And she responds properly. No, I can't do that. You know, it was just perfect. It was perfect for the character. And then, like you mentioned, when they point out the guy at the bar, and they're like, they're trying to figure out what his, his deal is and what it's at home. And, and her line was, the only sin the wife has is just being familiar. Mm. And, and, yes. and, and then Don mentioning how he feels, and she says, I miss that. And again, just that little line, she's lonely. And she, more than once, was cueing to him about... He's like, I'm going to go. And she's like, oh, I can drive too. I can go with you. No, he's just like, not going to do it. So there's like several lines where she's hanging it out there. I think she did want to go home with or somewhere with him. And he was just not going to have it. I think if you watch it again, I'm telling you, I thought that was a fabulous, well-acted, well-written scene. And maybe she didn't want to have a romantic, maybe she didn't, but I think she did. But she definitely wanted him to stick around and he took off. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, she wanted him to stick around. That's true. But I don't think it, she wanted to go anywhere with him uh, I think uh, romantically. <laughs> what do I don't you think, think Jessica? So. Um, I often talk about the reason a lot of people get in trouble is they like to flirt with danger. Mm-hmm. The flirting and having fun. She also is feeling very weak and lonely. I think you're very right about that, Brian. Hmm. Maybe subconsciously, I'll try to split the difference between you two. I think consciously, she's too smart to know that she's already involved with one partner Hmm. in a permanent basis with the child. She doesn't need another relationship with another partner where she works. But he is awful good looking. And she is awful lonely. And she says that. She says that. I think if I look at it on the page, like I look at the script and I see the words that were written, and then I actually pair it with like the way she performed the scene, like every line to me was like a invitation to him where she says, oh, you're just, you're irresistible. Right. She'll say those lines and her eyes kind of like look down as if like, okay, I've said it and what's he going to say next? I don't know. I, I just felt like everything she was saying was geared to that. Like, oh, who's going to believe that you're going to leave without me and or that you struck out? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, yeah. just, I just love that scene. I thought it was fabulous. I watched and, it a couple times. It, and it, I, was, so. it is one of the best scenes 
of this season. Yeah. Just truly, yeah, I mean, truly well, I, you know, I just think she and he brought things up to the edge, but didn't go over the edge. Yeah. I mean, he did say that he had the perfect wife. Didn't he say that to Yes, Joan? he did. So why, I mean, I think it was all talk. Well, when she says to him, you found it, didn't you? And I felt on the page, that's a pretty innocent line. But I think the way she spoke the words was mm-hmm. sort of like, you're pretty happy now, aren't you? I mean, it, it seemed, well, she didn't say it quite like that. I mean, it, as but an opening. It, it was an opening that, to me. It seemed like, and he was like, hmm. yep, yes, I do. And, and she was well, like, okay. You see, I took that a lot of the scene, not the whole scene, but, but much of the scene to go back to my old theme, which is happiness and material happiness and the fact that these people, most of them had a lot of money, and but were very, really unhappy. Don says that the car doesn't do anything for him. And Joan, I think, has a great line. She says, well, you don't need a car to make you happy. You know you're happy already. People who, who aren't happy need cars like that to make them happy. I thought that was a beautiful line. It was a really insightful line. How about let's go to the end of the episode where Don returns from his out in the wilderness, not really paying attention and or too much care about the agency. Now he's going to like say, all right, mm. taking off my coat, rolling up my sleeves, give him the big pep talk. Come on, boys, let's do it. Yeah, see, we're going we're gonna to work real hard. We're going to get this company. And he gives the talk. And he, he's we're like, going to swim the English Channel. Right? And then drown in the champagne. So what were your thoughts about it? I would like to say where it came from. I think it came from Megan again. I think Megan fired him up. She pointed out that he loved his work. And then he said, well, work isn't quite as good anymore, you know, meaning without you there, Megan. And then she said, wait a minute, come on, I'm not going to fall for that. You know, you loved your work before you ever knew I existed. And I think that kind of fired him up. I also, I thought was really interesting. There is a great scene in American President where Michael J. Fox and Michael Douglas start talking about leadership. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, they're so hungry that mm-hmm. they'll drink the sand. Right. I thought this team was so hungry for direction and vision from their leaders that instead of saying, oh, what? He just said we've got to work every weekend between now and Christmas. Mm. And he's flat saying, hey, we're not coasting through the end of this year. We are going to be busting ass, working hard, spending weekends because we are going to take this major piece of business. We are going to have Jaguar. And they all were not applauding politely. They all looked, yes, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want. This is what we need and seem to be happy. Do you guys get the same feeling? Yeah, because I think if you look at the structure of the agency, they have a competent team, but take them individually. Bert is Bert. Lane is not the guy that's going to go out and get the business. He's very timid. No one likes Pete. Roger was drunk half the episode and doesn't really know the business as much as inherited the business. And so really, where's the leadership coming from? It's got to come from Don. He's the guy. He's the poster boy. And he's he backs it up. He's done it. He's talented and he can motivate people. And so I think they've been waiting for somebody just to, who was not Pete, <laughs> to get him on the horse and, you know, lead him into battle. And so, yeah, they, they definitely were ready for it. As Peggy said one time, I think last season, we're all here just to please you, Don. That's true. We just yeah. want yes. to make you happy. That's why we're Absolutely. here. Yeah. And I think some of the malaise of this season, and I think, you know, Brian, you've said it a few times, 
think some of the malaise of this season is reflected in the fact that Don has been kind of in and out of the business, kind of disengaged with the business and thus disengaged with the whole plot of Mad Men in a sense. Although I think the point of his being disengaged is he's got a house, he's got, well, he's got an apartment, he's got a beautiful wife, he's got money. And he's kind of lost his drive, um, and he's kind of looking for what's going to make him happy at this point. And it's not more and more and bigger and bigger houses, cars, clothes. So he's kind of unhappy. You know, I think that's hard to sustain a television show if people don't want to see that. Two things on that. One, I think we saw the seeds of this with the snowballs where it hit Don that his work wasn't in this portfolio. Mm -hmm. He got his creative juices going, and he got that rush of a sale. I came up with Mm -hmm. an idea. The team helped build it. We pitched it. We bought. Yay for us. There was much rejoicing in the words of Monty Python. I think he remembers that feeling now. And so now then he wants to go with it. He wants this Jaguar account. He wants that desperately. I'll tell you what, I'm also thinking about Paul Kinsey coming back. I'm hoping we see some other characters come back. I mean, I loved when Freddie Rumson came back last season. I'm happy that Paul came back this season. I would love to see Salvatore Romano come back at some point. Yes, I was going to mention that too. I That's one of those characters where, of all the characters, I mean, I, I kind of wonder where Paul went, but of all the characters, I've always been like, Will... Salvatore come back, and I am eager to see if he does. I have the feeling that that character is Matthew Weiner's Russian mobsters <laughs> from Sopranos. Everyone wants him to go back to that, and he's going to, just like uh, David Chase never went back to the Russian mobster that was in the woods, woods uh, he's yeah. not, yeah, he's not going to come that back. Mm. Though, I hope he does. I like the character, and I think it would be really interesting to see where he is. He also was very good. Him and Don were in sync, and so it would be nice to have. We are down to two episodes, right, gentlemen? Two or three, yeah, something like that. Yeah, Yeah. so um, it's been a great ride. I'm looking to see how they're going to finish up. On that point, Jesse, just briefly, there's a lot to finish up. There's a lot to finish up. I'm curious to see how they do it in so few episodes. All right. Do you want to quickly do your favorite line of the episode? I think it's got to be, I just, the car salesman and him flirting with Joan, you know, that I want to pay you to drive the car. Mm -hmm. I think that would be, I just think one of my favorite lines. I also have a car one. It's not my, it's it's the runner up, the honorable mention. And that's when Bert says of Jaguar, I thought they're lemons, or I think they're lemons, or something like that. That was funny. <laughs> they don't start up, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. my favorite was when Joan is throwing the airplane at the poor receptionist, and she says, there's an airplane to see you. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> that was yes. great. And also funny, too, because it was, uh, well, not funny, but it was a Mohawk plane, and of course, later in the episode, they find out that Mohawk will be grounded, so mm. uh, interesting that they kind of tied in an airplane and... Uh, the agency's difficulty with that said airplane later on in the episode. Yeah. I mentioned it before, but I think when at the very, very end, um, Paul Kinsey says, you know, everybody said they were going to do something to help me, and you're the only one who actually did. And, and that, that the thing that Harry did was give him money, which, 
you wouldn't have thought a Hare Krishna would have said that. Yeah. An anti-materialist like that saying, well, that was the only thing that helped me. I thought that was a great line. Mm. All right. So another, I thought, a really good episode. Mm-hmm. Thanks Absolutely. again for everyone who's subscribing to our podcast. You can find us on the web at madcast.net and also on iTunes and Facebook. Look up Scotch and Smokes. Leave us a comment or just a general observation about Mad Men. We'd love to hear from you. And so until the next week, thank you for listening. And the bar is open. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.